Mary giggled again, then executed an amateurish bump and grind, tossed her image a kiss, and received one in return. After that, she stepped into the shower stall. The water was hot, and she had to add a mixture from the cold faucet. Finally, she turned both faucets off on full force and let the warmth gush over her. The roar was deafening, and the room was beginning to steam up. That's why she didn't hear the door open, or note the sound of footsteps. And at first, when the shower curtains parted, the steam obscured the face. Then she did see it, just a face, peering through the curtains, hanging in midair like a mask. A headscarf concealed the hair, and the glassy eyes stared inhumanly. But it wasn't a mask. It couldn't be. The skin had been powdered dead white and two hectic spots of rouge centered on the cheekbones. It wasn't a mask. It was the face of a crazy old woman. Mary started to scream, and then the curtains parted further and a hand appeared, holding a butcher's knife. It was the knife that, a moment later, cut off her scream. And her head. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Black Ink Red Film. I'm your host, Stephen, and with me tonight, as always, is... The other Stephen. Join us as we head on to fine Fairfield, California, in rainy weather. We're going to stop over at the Bates Motel, where I hear room one is available, and, uh, well, I'm ready for a hot shower. I don't know about the rest of you. Oh, the shower scene. We'll be talking about Psycho tonight. Oh my gosh, I didn't even mean that. Yes. We have a very exciting and fun-filled episode because we're going to be talking about the movie Psycho, the novel Psycho, some of the sequel novels, some of the sequel movies, and uh, some of the other parts of the franchise. So we've got a action-packed episode, so let's get right into it. So tonight we're going to do things a little bit differently. Normally here on Burf, as our loyal listeners will know, we start with talking about the novel, whether it be Frankenstein or Dracula, and then how movies adapted that. But honestly, we did a little bit of thinking about that, and we would not be having this episode if it were not for the iconic movie directed by Mr. Hitchcock. I think if you're listening to this, you are probably a fan of the movie, or you've probably seen the movie, or you've at least heard the score, or... So in this case, the movie has way more fame and notoriety than the novel that inspired it. So we're going to start our episode there. Yeah, this is an interesting case of all the things we've done episodes on. So in most cases, there's a novel. It becomes popular, becomes a bestseller, is around for a period of time, then eventually becomes a movie. Or, you know, in the case of Dracula and Frankenstein, it becomes a number of movies over a century or so. In the case of Psycho, the Robert Block novel Psycho came out in 59. It got some attention, was sort of a slow burn. I think it's mostly regarded as a really good kind of pulp horror novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple notches above a penny dreadful. It's uh, dreadful. It's actually a, a pretty good novel, actually. I like it. Yeah, yeah. But it's only when it became the movie that it really became iconic. Part of the reason is because Alfred Hitchcock jumped on the novel so quickly that he, uh, I mean, the movie came out in 60. Right. So there was not a whole lot of time between novel and um, movie. And of course, as the legend goes, if you were living in California at the time, one of the measures Hitchcock took was once he bought the screenplay, rights to the screenplay, he literally bought up every copy of the books in bookstores 
in uh, Southern California so that people wouldn't know what the big twist was. Right. So the movie really outshone, became a bigger icon, become a bigger thing than the novel, which is not always the case in things we talked about, but this is definitely one of those rare exceptions. Right. So we're going to get it right out of the way. The movie is a masterpiece. It's probably regarded as one of Hitchcock's best, if not his best movie. It's a, it's a suspense movie. I think the thing that struck me about it was... I'm a man of a certain age, but even being a man of a certain age, it is so ingrained in the culture that I, I, I kind of, I don't know when I did not know about the twist ending, right? So I've always known about the twist ending. It's, it's, it's gone back that far, right? I was not surprised by it. And so it would be interesting to know just how audience were reacting to it way back in the day. Like if you did not know what the twist ending is, how, how powerful that must have been. Well, like you, I'm a man in my mid-30s-ish, <laughs> give or take. Right, right. So don't worry about it. It's our show. And yeah, if I, if there's one, there's a lot of things I kind of wish I could go back in time for. One of the things I would have liked to have gone back into time and be able to do was to be able to actually see the movie Psycho completely fresh. Exactly. Because by the time I saw it, like you, we knew about it. Yep. I knew all about the twists and everything else. We are on the Universal Tours. We read all the Fango magazines and whatever else. So it was out there, right? But if we could have gone into that in 1960, gone into a theater completely fresh, Mm -hmm. I would have loved to have had that sensation. Because I've never, I've rarely had that feeling in a movie theater that I'm sure the people in 1960 had. Because, you know, if you remember, they went through incredible measures to protect the ending. They weren't lending people into the theater after a certain time. They were almost yeah. Getting, they were like closing the doors after ten minutes. They were doing all the stuff. I mean, they went through incredible measures to protect what Great was marketing. the twist ending. It was fantastic marketing, mm-hmm. and I would have loved to have been part of that era. I would have loved to have seen it that way. That being said, even knowing what it was and having seen the film several times as you have, I so I consider it on my personal list for whatever it's worth. I consider it the ninth greatest horror film of all time. Mm-hmm. And if anybody wants to argue whether it's number one or four or whatever, I'm not going to argue hard, strong for that because there's you can make that argument. It's an amazing film that I don't think you could make anymore. And what's amazing about it, without getting into a great deal of detail, the film, you don't from the very beginning of the film, you don't know where it's going. If you don't know what the title is, if you didn't know the book, you don't know where this movie is going from the beginning. And for the first 30 or 40 minutes of the film, Psycho is one of the great film war movies of all time. Right, right. I mean, this I can't express how incredibly well-made this movie is. Yeah. And then about the 40-minute mark, you basically get a crowbar smashed over your head. You don't know where this movie's going. You're scared to death. And it then becomes a horror classic. This is... You can make an argument Hitchcock made better films. You certainly can. This was an interesting place in Hitchcock's own career. When Hitchcock made this film, he was deemed out old and outmoded. Hmm. He took he had to finance a lot of this movie out of his own pocket. Right, right. And this was his way of saying, "Oh, really, fool? You think I'm done? Let me show you show the kids how it's done." And it's exactly what he did. So Psycho, the history around the film, and the fact that this film is such a remarkable bit of filmmaking on several levels is even if you know the story you don't know how good this movie is if you haven't seen it so please see it because this is a fantastic bit of art 
Yeah, and we, we are spoiler rich on this show. So in the off chance you have not seen Psycho and you don't know what we're talking about, just pause the episode now, go watch it, and then come back. We'll wait. Okay, we're done waiting. The film used to be a longer, I thought. Yeah. Really? That's, I don't know. Okay. Well, people it have like pause it was keys. closer to two hours. I don't know. So yeah, so the notes I have about why this movie is so fantastic, even to a modern audience, really, not even in context of when it came out in the 60s, is um, I want to reiterate the point you made. So the first 40 minutes of this film, we're seeing this entire movie through the eyes of Janet Lee's character, Marion Crane. Mm-hmm. So it's a suspense movie. It's it's almost like Fargo, like watching the Coen Brothers Fargo movie. It's, it's a late era film noir. It's a late era film from like the 40s and 50s of like a dame on the lamb. Exactly, right? So she has stolen some money from her boss. She's going to go see her lover whom she's been trying to marry, but they don't have the money to get married because he works in uh, his father's debt-ridden hardware store. And there's so much brilliance of how Hitchcock intersperses her inner monologue with what she thinks, you know, so... We'll, we'll get into the differences of the novel, but we know exactly what she's thinking because it's coming over as a voiceover in her head mm-hmm. and the music and the lighting and it's getting darker and it's raining and you were just feeling more and more dread until she finally makes it to the Bates Motel and meets this Norman character mm-hmm. who's, you know, a boy next door, quite literally. And her maturity versus his immaturity and there's just... So much. And then, of course, we get to the famous shower scene, right? Yes. We have to talk about the shower scene. Can I catch you off for a quick second? Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk about the bril- part of the brilliance of Hitchcock with this movie and, and the risk he took with what, everything you've described to this point. Because, again, if you and I are, it's 1960, we've put down our 10 cents or whatever to see this movie. We're walking to this theater, and we know right on the marquee is Anthony Perkins and Janet Lee, Right. Both young, up-and-coming, already starting to become established young stars in the industry. Mm-hmm. Perkins already had an Oscar nomination under his belt. Janet Lee was coming up and being a big star. I think she had one, too, in fact. So you're already watching this and you're thinking, wow, man, this is going to be some film noir where you know she's going to be the dame on the lamb with this money and then she's going to hook up with this naive but handsome drifter motel owner and then we're going to have some action and drama going towards the film and at that 40 minute mark everything changes i don't even know what comparison to give to this for modern audiences but i mean this was at the 40 45 minute mark whatever it was this was a kick in the throat that changed literally changed the horror industry forever mm-hmm. and you know i it was amazing right there is so much and and it's 40 minute mark is the famous shower scene there are books written about the shower yeah. scene entire documentaries sure. done about the shower scene it's studied in film classes across the world yeah exactly it's the film itself is captured in afi or the library of congress whatever mm-hmm. it is where they are establishing it mm-hmm. and and yeah you're right there is no i i cannot think of a modern equivalent of where and here comes the spoilers where the main character is killed off so early so brutally well let's put and this it way. changes the entire tone of the film and now we're yeah now we're looking at the world through norman's eyes and hitchcock's brilliance and it's not a short amount of time in in literally Mm -hmm. probably about four to five minutes worth of screen time we we are becoming sympathetic to norman trying to cover up the murder now the big twist is we don't think it's norman who killed her but you know 
Yeah, and, and again, this is uh, Hitchcock at his most manipulative. And, well, let me go back. I was going to say, let's put it this way. If we have seen what happened with Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins in movies since, it's be, it started here. It had never been done before here. Yep. And, yeah, there's there's this fantastic scene. One of my, I think it actually may be my favorite scene in, in the film where after he kills Janet Lee and he's trying to get rid of the body, and again, per your point. Mother kills Janet Mother killed her. Yeah. Right? He puts the body in the trunk, wraps her up, and puts and, and sends the uh, the car into the swamp. Right. And there's this wonderful moment where the, the car stops. It's not sinking. And we look and we see his face. And in a truly horrifying moment, we sympathize with him. Exactly. And it's just like, this is one of the greatest moments I've ever seen in a movie. That's actually more than a shower or anything else. That's my favorite scene in that movie. Yeah. And yeah. then when the car actually starts to sink more... We're actually relieved, and then we feel dirty because right, we right. feel sorry for what happened. Exactly. We're, we're relieved for him. Right. To keep going from there, the, the movie takes a pretty dramatic turn. We're introduced to Marion's sister, played by... Who's it played by? Uh, Verna Miles. Verna Miles, who I also think, actually, is an incredibly powerful character in this film. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, she brooks no nonsense. She is not suffering any fool she's not being mansplained to no. through any of this i i don't think well i'm, I'm gonna I'm about to say i don't think she gets enough credit but to a modern audience when whenever i see like the powerful female characters she should be up at the top re-watching that film with fresh eyes about mm-hmm. how much she drives the resolution of that film yeah she's very good in mystery it. i should say because she almost takes over being the lead character in it yeah i mean again most people will say it's norman and, and there's an argument that, again, that's the brilliance of the film. It's, yeah. it's you're never quite sure what who to focus on, other than there is this new shift. She comes into the film. She's a very strong character. Again, that follow kind of follows suit with the film noir era, where you did have these very strong women mm-hmm. who ultimately kind of dictated the fate of the of the the big tough you know cigar smoking men in the film. And then you've got, of course, Martin Balsam coming in as the private detective. And again, the, 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 the film's ability to sort of run that line between film noir and this new era of horror is incredible. Hitchcock, again, did with this film what every landmark horror film did. It took com- audiences out of its comfort zone and told them, you don't know what's coming up, so you better fasten your seatbelt. Yep. Put that popcorn down, buddy, because you don't know where you're going right now and you're going to be scared. So much about this film you could talk about. You could talk about the editing, the lighting, obviously the score of the film. I mean. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. um, Bernard Herrmann's score. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I I was going to do a couple of Man on the Street episodes or interviews before this just to see if people could recognize, like the younger audience could recognize that very classic violin. I think it's iconic. It's almost as famous. It probably is as famous as the Jaws. Oh yeah, and it's been ripped off heavily. Yeah. If, if you watch the Friday the 13th films, those that, that was ripped off. My favorite scene in the movie isn't necessarily the shower scene, or uh, even though I do love the shower scene, I love the scene you're it's, talking it's, about. Sure. My favorite scene in the movie is Norman and Marion chatting while she's having the sandwich. Yeah. Before oh, I yeah. mean the powerful acting between those two. Yeah. As, as Norman is doing his frustration, talking about his frustration with mother, his naivety. She's like slowly pulling the thread, like, well, why do you stay? And, and I mean, just brilliant all the way around. Yeah, and what's terrific about that is we, it's, it's really our first major scene with Norman 
to a large degree, and we have two great performances by two great young up-and-coming actors. Mm-hmm. And it plays out well with happens in the book as well, because the book right. covers that scene very well. And what we pick up in the in the movie, in the scene in the movie, is we determine there that we detect that there's a charm, but also sort of a problem with Norman. Yep. And we also, during the course of the scene, through Janet Lee and and I'm going to talk about the unsung hero of this film in a moment, but Janet Lee in this performance, so we know she she stole this money. We know she set out to do, and we know during and we through her performance we detect that she's now having second thoughts about what she did. Yeah, that's after talking. That's to part of the voice monologue as right. well. She's starting to hear the ramifications yeah. of what will probably happen, and she's and that comes thinking out, of returning the money. Yeah, and that comes out through the performances. Right, and that's so beautiful. And I want to point out in that scene and through most of the movie, including a later great scene that Anthony Perkins has with the private investigator Martin Balsam where there there's sort of like this interrogation going on. Mm-hmm. The unsung hero of the film psycho is the screenwriter, Joseph Stefano, who did a f- brilliant job of adopting the novel. He, he carried almost everything with it, which is, you know, smoothing out yeah. a few things for timing purposes. But the dialogue he brings into the screenplay is spot on. It's wonderful. It hits every right note. And it's just, I think he doesn't get enough credit for how great this movie is. Yeah. We do have we do have the uh, the iconic line, which I didn't realize how iconic it was until I watched this a couple times. Which is the "We all go a little mad sometimes." Normally right. talking about we all going a little mad sometimes, right. which gets picked up in in all the sequels yeah. as well, and some of its ripoffs. Right, right. The last thing, at least I want to talk about in terms of the movie, is the big reveal of Mother at the end. And I think that is how, like I said, I've always known who the killer is just because I, I saw that scene so often at Creature Features <laughs> and other documentaries, Cisco yeah, and Ebert and all yeah. the things. that Before I ever saw the movie, I knew that Mom was in the cellar. Yeah, by 1961, the cat was out of the bag. Yeah, exactly. Such a great film. Anything else you want to talk about before we go into all the differences of the novel or anything like that? Well, I mean, let's um, just quick thing on that. Along with, I mean, this was the the amazing semi comeback film for Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. It was also presented us with the Anthony Perkins performance. Just amazing. Yeah. This. Well, yes. I mean, I think I, I looked it up earlier. American Film Institute has this has his performance as Norman Bates ranked as the number four greatest movie character of all time. Mm-hmm. That's saying something. Yeah. But here's what's funny about it. Well, not funny. And this is, you've heard me say this before. Anthony Perkins did such a great job playing Norman Bates that it ruined his career. Mm. Later on in his life, when the sequels came out, he made a few bucks off of that. And we'll talk about the sequels later, right? But, right. So, I mean, here, Anthony Perkins in the 50s was coming up as this young, dashing, up-and-coming, next big thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the dude was getting romantic leads opposite Jane Fonda and Sophia Loren. Hmm. He had an Oscar nomination in 1956 for Friendly Pers- Persuasion, playing Gary Cooper's son. He's working with Gary Cooper. He's working with Henry Fonda. He's playing Jack Palance's son in the film. He's turning into being the next big thing in this industry. And then he does Psycho and play Norman Bates, and he never got out of that. Hmm. He never recovered from playing Norman Bates professionally. Yeah. But here's a funny bit of trivia that I, I found just totally by accident, was that in 1957, so three years before Psycho, he's in a Western called The Ten Star with Henry Fonda. 
His co one of his co-stars in this film was an actress named Betsy Palmer. Mm-hmm. Young actress. Betsy Palmer, 23 years later, 1980 for the kids, would play Pamela Voorhees, Jason's son, <laughs> in Friday the 13th. Jason's mother? Yes. Yeah. So let this is what's... I mean, this is hilarious. So basically, yes, in 1957, Norman Bates was in a movie with Jason Voorhees' mother. <laughs> but what's even better about that, think about, the, think about this. So Norman Bates was a son an obsessive psychotic son being told to kill by his dead mother right pamela Voorhees. well no his dead mother was doing the killing well yes spoiler blah 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 yeah pamela Voorhees was an obsessive psychotic mother who was being told by her allegedly dead son dead son to kill people so this is just you just stumble on this stuff by accident you're like if only these two had known back in 1957 (laughs) right it would uh just uh, so I actually just I'm I, I'm gonna look I'm gonna watch the ten star at some point. I want to get a screen cap hoping I get the two of them on screen at the same time. But but yeah, poor uh, Perkins. Um, he struggled heavily financially after this film, and because he wasn't gonna get those romantic leads anymore, he got villain roles and other random just yeah. bit roles. But you know, it really wasn't until Psycho two, you know, in, in 1983 that he actually got to make a few bucks again playing that character. Your story actually reminds me, speaking of anecdotes, mm-hmm. that, and I don't have a lot of like brushes with celebrity. I'm not a famous guy, uh-huh. but I actually ran into Anthony Perkins, oh, the that's actor, right. yeah. uh-huh. um, as a young kid. I was uh-huh. probably, I don't know, 12, 13. My parents had dropped me off at Universal Studios. Uh-huh. And this is before it was a theme park, it was just the tour. Yeah. And we did the tour, and he was there. Like he was literally, I literally ran into him in the bathroom. <laughs> and even then, I I don't think I'd seen Psycho, but I knew who he was. Yeah. And I'm like, oh hey, and I have somewhere something somewhere I have a piece of thing that he signed for me. He was a super nice guy, super friendly. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, he's one of my few celebrity run-ins that I've had. But yeah, the the performance of him as Norman Bates. If you go watch the subtlety of what he does in that role. I mean, it is one of the truly great screen performances of oh, all yeah. time. Period. Absolutely. I've I've now, in prep of this episode, I've seen it three times, and I'm just amazed by the subtlety of his performance, yeah. the cadence of his talk, his, his mannerisms, his twitchiness as he gets more and more nervous. It's just it's just an incredible performance, and he has and he has some great moments in the sequels too. He does. He does. I mean, he owned this character, and he truly loved playing this character. And I mean, he was. He was a strange and perfect, perfect storm of actor and character. So before we talk about the sequels, why don't we talk a little bit about the novel, at least, before we get into right. the sequel movie. So, Stephen E., we read the novel Psycho by Robert Block. I would say the novel is pretty close to the movie. Oh, very. Yeah, I, I would say some of the major, from a story perspective, it's it's pretty tight pretty close um there was some you know they've changed i think she's mary crane and not marion there's very subtle differences yeah and there were reason a lot of, well yeah 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 and robert block was a i don't know if he was well known then but he's certainly well known now and he he would mm-hmm. go on to be a very well-regarded thriller sci-fi writer wrote for star trek right, um, right. wrote for a number of things but as it relates to psycho norman's character in the novel to me, the thing that struck me is the novel is mostly... The, so we talked earlier about how 
the movie, the first third of the movie is all from her perspective. Right. Most of the novel is through his perspective. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's his point from of view. From the very beginning. Yeah. He's definitely a little bit, the the physical characterization of Norman is very different. Yes. He's pudgier. He's definitely more of an introvert. So I think he's like horn rim glasses kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he definitely feels a little bit, like the, I'd have to go back and, and reread the the uh, the big sandwich scene where he's making where he interacts, but right. I I definitely don't think Norman the movie Norman seemed a lot smoother with Marion than book Norman was with Mary. Yeah, I think I mean just you can make an argument to some degree that book Norman is more like what real psycho Norman might have been like. Yeah, but for again movies are sort of their own universe, if you will. Yeah. I think in the context of movie, 1960 movie psycho, and again, Hitchcock wanted to keep us on the heels. I think what he did with Anthony Perkins being a little slicker was the right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Take. Yeah. And I, I definitely remember thinking as I was reading the novel recently that book Norman is much more misogynistic. You know, there's a lot more sure. anger as he's doing the big voyeur right, scene. Right. That's the other big scene that we didn't really talk about that. The big peeping Tom scene of Norman looking at Marion slash Mary right. before she gets into the shower. Book Norman is angrier, feeling like, right. you know, just really upset with how Mary is making him feel. Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because in the peeping Tom scene, so in the book, that's how it's described. I believe in the 1960 film, the idea was that Norman was going to be masturbating to her while looking through the hole. Mm-hmm. And that was the one, one of the few battles that Hitchcock didn't win at the ratings board. I believe in the, in the highly controversial remake, shot for shot remake in 98, I believe Vince Vaughn does masturbate mm. to while looking through the people. Yeah. So. I didn't, Three different interpretations. I do remember people. seeing that film. Um, yeah. I didn't watch it again before prepping for this episode. Right. So, yeah, it's out there. I'm, I'm sure. I, I remember well, even seeing it at the time when it first came out, thinking, why did they do this? Well, we can roll that into our talk about the movies, because I might have a couple things to say, because oh. it killed some brain cells. <laughs> and I like to, I want to air it. The last thing I will say about the novel is it was surprisingly tight. It's a very... Mm-hmm. Reading the novel, it's it's a quick read. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very tight read. It it actually doesn't it doesn't read like a novel that was written in the sixties or in the late fifties. It had very punchy writing, very quick editing style, for lack of a better word, um, very graphic, obviously. So I was actually surprised, and I I did not feel that way with the sequel novels, but we'll get into <laughs> that in a bit. But yeah, I think it, it's it was a. I, I think it holds up, right? That that book holds up today as a as a good crime thriller. Now, obviously, we live in a world where everybody knows the ending and everybody right, right. knows, so it's hard, like you say, it's hard to come in fresh to these things. But yeah, I mean, there there are some dated parts of it, so it's a it's a book of its time with some of the characterizations. But yeah, generally speaking, I think it's um, a really well done crime thriller. I would have loved, to, again, with the movie, I would have loved to have read this completely fresh back in 1959, mm-hmm. but I would have had to be a lot older and I'd probably be dead now. Yeah. So we wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it's an interesting case of it's, it's, you're right. It's, it was a, it's a wonderfully quick and easy and fun read. 
it's sort of like a very high-end Penny Dreadful pulp novel. And I, I don't mean that as an insult, honestly. I think it's yeah. a very well-written. But I would have loved... but I, Because the challenge I had reading through this, because I try to sort of take myself out of my own mind sometimes when reading, which is to say I do drink sometimes when I read. <laughs> Let's be honest. What do you really say? And when I watch movies, and frankly, when I play pinball. But yeah. anyway... And right before podcasts. And right, and definitely before podcasts. But I, I, reading the novel, I don't know if you did this, but because Block does a fantastic job of not of holding his cards close to his chest in terms of what the twist is. Mm-hmm. That being said, I keep I read the novel. I think if I had not known what this was about, if I'd been living in a cave my entire life, I wonder at what point I might have caught on to the twist. Yeah, and there were a couple clues. I'm thinking, yeah, I think I might be catching on to what the twist is. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. But yeah, I, it's hard like to know. Very subtle telegraphs, like in the, you know, last third of the book that suggest this is a kind of a little bit of a tip off if you're paying attention. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Regard, I can't tell. I wish I could. But regardless, it's a it's a fun book. It's I, it's a good book. It's a very good book. I think the novel and the movie hold up very well next to each other. You don't lose much going from one to the other. I think arguably the movie is a better movie than the book is a book, but there have been fewer movies than there have been books. Well, you don't there's no argument. Or the the movie's a masterpiece. Sure, the book, but the, the book's book, okay. The book's good. No, yeah. I, I think it's good. It's, yeah, a, good, it's good. a good book. It's but a not three like to three masterpiece, yeah. Well, yeah, but you know what? I would pick it up again and read it. So. Yeah. It's still in print. Like I had no problem sure. finding a copy oh, yeah, of like yeah, Romans yeah. in Pasadena or wherever I was. Right, but um, <laughs> as opposed to like sequel novels, where we're scouring eBay. Well, let's go. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was about to start a Kickstarter campaign to fund this episode if we had to pay <laughs> what I thought we were going to have to for the two novels that followed that you and I read. Because at some point, both of those were going for like ninety bucks a piece on e- on Amazon, right. and I'm like, if this is the case, we're just not talking about these on the show. Well, why don't we put a bumper in here, and then we'll talk a little bit about sequels. Yes. So after the novel and after the movie, we don't hear from Norman for a while. He's been away for a while. He's been away for a He's while. He's been busy. And then I believe it was after Hitchcock died. Yes. That's when Universal decided to do a sequel. And apparently Mr. Block, the author of Psycho, did not get a call. And so what 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 happened with Mr. Block when he realized that Universal was doing a sequel and he didn't get a call? Well, my understanding, he was just a tiny bit, as the kids like to say, butthurt about <laughs> not being asked to participate in the sequel. So he said, oh, yeah, fine. I'm going to write my own novel, Psycho 2. And publish that so there. Yeah, and my research says that uh, Universal said, no, we got it from here. Yeah. And he's like, eh, no, I'm going to write a sequel. Yeah, yeah. So we actually, around pretty much the same time, had 1983-ish, we had the Psycho 2 movie come out from Universal. And then I believe we had Robert Block's Psycho 2 novel, which neither had any to, anything to do with the other, come out. Right. So for purposes of this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the two sequel novels that Mr. Block wrote, now that you know a little bit of the backstory, and then we'll go into the movies. But before we go much further, so just to know, Block writes two novels, sequels, Psycho 2, and then I believe Psycho House. Correct. 
and they are drastically different from the Universal movie sequels. Correct. But we're going to talk about the the, the novels first. So Psycho 2, the novel by Robert Block. And just a quick correction for whatever it's worth that we may be talking about a matter of hours if this happened on New Year's. <laughs> so Psycho 2, the novel came out in 1982. Okay. The movie came out in 83. Right. So. But I think eh. your math is right. I think he knew that. The... They were on top of each other functionally. Yeah. yeah. So here's, I'm going to give my hot take and I'll let Stephen E. give his hot take. <laughs> oh, thanks. My my armchair research, and this is a great thing about this podcast, is we don't do a lot of research. I mean, we do some. But uh, as I understand it, Psycho 2, <laughs> the novel, made a fair amount of money. So good for Mr. Block. But yeah, that's not a good book. Well, it's, no, it's actually kind of a bad book, quite honestly. It's such, it's so bad it's actually shocking to think it was from the same author. Um, I'll just, just to be perfectly blunt about that. I mean, I'll, I'll just, without going into a ton of detail on it. So the think it's off to a pretty good start um, in terms of Norman being in the asylum, Norman still being locked up, and then the whole escape scene with Norman getting out. And then the whole thing, just a quick summary of the plot, involves Norman psychologist or psychiatrist, long-term psychiatrist, you know, f- trying to find out what where Norman is, and he determines Norman is now headed off to Hollywood, where they're apparently making a movie about his life, and things and hilarity ensues from there. And there's a twist that we saw coming around page, I don't know, eleven, whatever it was. <laughs> it's really a, I mean, it's number one, it's not a very good story after about the first fifty pages, and it's really kind of an angry story. When they finally get to the the chapters where they're in Hollywood, is where really where Block's writing picks up, in terms of its edge. But it's clearly angry. He's really pissed off at Hollywood. There's a lot of just flank, frankly, ugly, ugly stuff in this novel that's just takes you out of it a little bit. And then there's a twist you see coming, and by the end of the novel, well, actually, I'll, I'll say this. And you may have read it better. You're a smarter guy than I am, but, but... And handsome. And, well, let's not push it, but... I actually still not sure exactly what happened towards the end of the novel. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. But by the end of the novel, you're like, uh, yeah, that's not... It's not It's not a good novel. I truly don't recommend it. It's... Um, Universal was probably right, is what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, so, so here's what I will say about it. So well, we'll talk about the movies in a second. But the people who wrote the sequel stories for the movies understood what made Psycho popular. Yeah. And expanded the story. Oh, gosh, yes. And even though Robert Block created Norman, created the original story, let's be clear, Hitchcock made it famous. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And so, again, the summary of the story is it opens with an interesting premise. There's two nuns visiting... The psychiatric ward where Norman has been held for the last 20, 30 years, whatever it is. One of the nuns is actually a Norman expert. So she's read about him. She's a psychiatric expert herself. There's some interesting setup. Norman escapes. And then I'm just going to give away the plot. We don't see Norman again because apparently he dies early on in the book. We don't see this till the end. And it's really his psychiatrist who has a snap and has been acting out as Norman. Similar to how 
So I think I think <laughs> Robert Block was trying to do another twist where Norman was his mother. It's really the psychiatrist. It's Norman killing off all the people that are trying to do a dramatization, getting the movie rights. And you're right. It's a freaking angry novel. It's just bitter and ugly. And, and not very, it's not a good story. Yeah. It's not even a, well, so I want to thank you for one thing, giving that away. I was going to try to sell this, my copy of the novel off to one of our readers <laughs> for like 80 bucks. But if you, you want us to sign it, you, signed by the oh, guys oh, who oh, did it. I'm a, happy to do that, folks. So please podcast. let us know. I'm more than happy to take that thing off my shelf. But yeah, no, it's, uh, here's what I equate both of the psycho novels to. Let's just say hypothetically, Peter Benchley bless his heart, may he rest in peace, had decided to write Jaws 2 as a novel. And in Jaws 2, there were more bathers being killed during the 4th of July weekend. And people are arguing, it's a shark. No, it's a sh- not a shark. This, that, and the other thing. And by the end of the novel, it turns out there was no shark. Sheriff Brody had just hired Quint's brother <laughs> to basically go kill people at sea at night with an outboard motor to be able to frame and make it look like a shark was attacking. That's basically we have the psycho novels. These are, I, I hate to say, ripoffs, but they're ba- they're badly written. They're not very good stories, and if they're what you're looking for in terms of furthering an over Bates story, you wasted your money. That's right. So, in full disclosure, I did read that novel when it came out in what did you say eighty three or whatever, and I couldn't, and so I kind of knew the ending, even though I couldn't <laughs> remember a thing about the book other than it takes place in Hollywood. And Norman is killed off earlier, and that's a big twist at the end. So, yeah. yeah. So then comes Psycho House. Oh, dear. God, which came out. You have... uh, do you have your in your notes when Psycho 1990. House? 1990. It was actually Robert Bloch's last published novel. And in Psycho House, oh, so again, in case it wasn't clear from our last summary, <laughs> Norman dies around, I don't know, we'll say chapter three. But then we are led to believe he's alive. So anyway, so Norman's dead. So Norman's dead. He's long gone by the time Psycho House starts. Right. So he's long gone by the time. So the premise of Psycho House actually starts a little bit more interesting in that there are some local folks that are looking to make a quick buck. So they're going to restore the Bates Motel and the Bates House, put in some animatronics so that they can make touristy dollars. And it's as if, you know... uh, the Tate house went on the market or Polanski's house, wherever the murders took place. Right, right. And they're going to recreate the murderer and some of the victims and all right. that. So that's the setup of the novel. And then people, you know, it opens with the teaser, if you will, two girls are exploring the house, trying to sneak around. And one of them gets killed off psycho house. Again, Norman's not in it there. It's a direct sequel to psycho two. It's a whodunit. So there's these murders happening and we are introduced to a cast of a broad cast of characters. The protagonist of the novel is a journalist, young woman who is meeting with the town sheriff and meeting with the town politicians and meeting with the deputies and meeting with everyone. And so the the interesting part of that novel and, and full disclosure, I liked Psycho House more than I liked Psycho 2. Even though, again, it's like you kind of forgot. Other than like it, it happens in the orbit of Fairville and Fairville right, right. and, and the Bates Hotel. It's not a good novel, but I liked it better because it actually. And I'm and I know I'm jumping around, so I apologize to our listeners. Psycho Two read like it was read, written by a completely different author. It didn't have any of the. In my mind, it didn't have any of the style of the first Psycho. 
at least Psycho House, Psycho 3, I, I kind of see how Robert Block wrote it. It feels similar to the first Psycho novel, even though it's off the plot a little bit. This is where you and I are going to get into one of these things that I'm intrigued by, but also ashamed by, which is when we have these, which of these things that completely sucked actually sucked more arguments. <laughs> when I'm thinking you and I could be trying to try to find a way of cure COVID or make the world a better place, but this is what we're doing. But I don't know which of these, not, I, I, to some degree, I disliked Psycho House even more. Mm -hmm. It plays out like a bad ABC movie of the week mystery. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking of, of reading through this as like, well, Gavin McLeod and Lee Rimmick ought to be showing up any time. <laughs> and it's just, again, I mean, there's a couple. Robert Wagner with his Robert Wagner's got to be showing in there with his stunt double. But I'm just thinking, this is just not very, there's a couple of interesting ideas, this whole idea where like this, was a psychic or a demonologist shows up and presents this whole idea that maybe Norman Bates is a demon and it's cursing the area and whatever else. And then that you know, really no, goes King nowhere. Some of that. So that's a very Kingian type thing. Well, right? but so... King gets away with a lot of stuff because he's just flat out a really, really talented writer. Right. I mean, he gets away with, I mean, he just, there's a lot of sizzle that overcomes the poor steak he serves sometimes. Yeah. But Psycho House to me just was a bad pot boiler. But Psycho 2, I don't know. I actually don't know which of those novels I hated more. I just wish you had not made me aware of them and caused me to spend money to have in the time to read them. So, really, there you go. Psycho, really, really good novel. Psycho 2 and Psycho House seemed like they were written by a completely different author, to your point. Yeah. Gentle listeners, I, I don't know what else we need to say about those novels. Um, don't read them, but I have both copies of 2 and 3. They go for a lot of money on Amazon and eBay. If you'd like to make me an offer on them, please do. I'm more than happy to part ways with them. We'll sign them. We'll, we'll have pictures I, I taken will, with them. Absolutely. Whatever you want. If you want a lock of, well, not my hair, but the other Stevens hair, we'll, we'll put it in there. Whatever you want. Let us know. I'm more than happy to take those off my bookshelf where they're already starting to grow mold. Yeah, and like many, again, the irony is I, I think I paid retail for Psycho 2, and then how much did you pay for it on eBay? Well, I got totally lucky, because I'm not, I'm not kidding. You and I, when I, we because you made me aware there were the book sequels. I didn't know they existed, mm. right? And I looked them up on Amazon, no Kindle, which already is a warning sign. Right. And then I think both of them were going for like collector amounts of individually anywhere from 50 to 100 bucks a piece. Wow. And then I got on eBay, and I found someone who was like emptying out their attic, <laughs> or trying to get back on their ex, their ex, or something like that, and I wound up getting both for thirteen bucks. Yeah. So I got super lucky on that. That's why I'm saying, if not for that deal, we would probably not be talking about these anyway. <laughs> this seems to be my uh, this seems to be my superpower with this podcast because I just bought the Omen again. Oh, cool. Um, spoiler alert for future episodes. I just bought the <laughs> Omen again, which I also owned as a kid, and I just spent like about. 20 bucks on her on eBay. Anyway, that's all we were going to say about psycho novel follow-ups. Don't bother. Thank gosh. But let's, let's put in another bumper and then we'll talk about some sequel movies. However, as we alluded to earlier, Universal was going to make a sequel sequel, a psycho sequel. Anthony Squeakle. Squeakle. And Psycho 2, the movie completely different plot. Norman has gotten out of 
the psychiatric ward. Again, the Vera Miles character is there because she's a little Marion's sister. Yeah, Marion's sister, whose name I forgot, which we could put in later. Is it Lila? Lila, yeah, exactly. Okay. Oh, well, so, there right. you go. So Lila's pissed off that Norman's getting out, but Norman's out. So again, spoiler alerts on this one. Most of the movie is people start getting killed off. You know, Norman gets a job. He's working at a diner. He's trying to reacclimate himself, but obviously he's nervous because he's back at the home. But what's interesting is, again, Anthony Perkins giving a world-class performance. Yeah. He's great. He picked up where he left off. Exactly. So Anthony Perkins is making, you're, you're, you're making your, you're getting your value for your dollar from watching Anthony Perkins in this. And things are starting to happen. People are starting to get murdered. And now he's starting to question his own sanity as these, as these events are unfolding in and around the diner. He's introduced to a young woman uh, played by one of the Tilly Meg sisters, Tilly. Meg Tilly. Yeah. We talk about the spoilers at the end of the day. The spoiler alert on this one is it's actually Lila is. So Meg Tilly's character is a daughter of Lila. So the, right. again, Lila was Marion Crane, shower victim's sister. And so they're trying to frame Norman to get him to go back to prison. So she's been the one doing all the killing. Right mayhem ensues but then there's a twist ending to the psycho 2 movie which is norman is actually going insane a woman comes out of the woodwork who we haven't seen who claims to be his real mother and then he whacks her with a shovel so we know that really norman's not doing well at the very end of the movie yeah this is um okay first of all it's just from a fundamental story standpoint it's phenomenally better than the novel than Robert Locke's attempted Psycho 2 in the novel. Yep. So it just makes more sense as far as like a progression. So this is 23 years after the original film. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff that makes sense with that. At the same time, so when I first saw Psycho 2, which was probably back in 83 or 84, yep. I thought it was pretty good. When I watched it again fairly recently, my opinion of it had dropped quite a bit. Mm. For a couple reasons, for several reasons. Number one, I think Meg Tilly's performance is just horribly off. Yeah, I agree. She oddly got some weird nominations, Saturn Awards nominations, but apparently even Perkins was trying to get her fired. And there's several scenes where it seems like she's being overdubbed. Now, Meg Tilly turned out to be an okay actress, so I don't want to really jump on her, but it just, there was no real chemistry or vibe with her. I just thought she didn't work very well in this role. Especially when opposed to the strength of his role, yeah, she's and even Vera Miles' role re reproducing that character. Well, Robert Loggia is in the film, and there's scenes yeah. where like she's with them, and she's like, "This is a minor league player with some pros." Yeah, and 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 the other two problems I had was that I think the whole twists and things that go on toward the end just are unnecessary. There's too much plot for this film's good. And what really disappointed me watching this. So the director of this film, Psycho Two, was Richard Franklin. So Richard Franklin, an Australian director, had made a film called Road Games a year or two earlier, which I think is one of the great thrillers ever made, especially from that era. Most people haven't seen it. So I'm reaching out. Eric Lucas, I'm reaching out to you. You have either seen this or you need to see it, and you'll know what I'm talking about. This is a fantastic suspense thriller with Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis in it. That's how he got the job to do mm. Psycho 2. But Psycho 2, he's, and I don't know if there was studio interference or whatever else. There's never been reports that I've read. 
but the whole production seems terribly stilted. There's individual scenes in the film that just seem terribly stagey and awkward. And the film just, at the end of the day, just lacks any real suspense. Yeah. It just doesn't, it doesn't hold up well. And um, you and I talked about this, I think, when we watched it together, was it's not a bad film. It's just not a very yeah. good movie at all, right? And it was never expected to live up to the original, but it it's not very good, in my opinion. It's just not, it's not terrible. It's not very good. You and I made the comparison of Jaws 2 to Jaws and Psycho 2 to Psycho. I think here's the, here's where I think Jaws 2 works better than Psycho 2. And this is another one of those what sucks more <laughs> or less arguments, I guess, right? Jaws 2, even though it was a much lesser film than Jaws, was made only a couple few years later than Jaws 1. It still fits into the same genre and timeline, feels about the same, if not as good. Psycho 2 happened 23 years later than Psycho 1. It's in color. It's having to fit within the realm of the 80s slasher genre. And to me, it just doesn't feel like it. It feels like it's not working. It's like a bad fitting toupee that means well and has a good story. It just doesn't execute as well as it should. Well, so yeah, we did have that conversation. So here's what I would say about that. Both Jaws and Psycho, they have to live in the shadow of a movie that's a masterpiece. Correct. And that you can't recapture that magic. You can't. No. And, and I think this is where Block messed up in his Psycho 2 novel. He tries to figure out a twist ending again, but that's no. not what... It wasn't the twist ending that made that no. brilliant, right? No, 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 no. He did it with Psycho House 2, and again, you figured it out pretty easily, and it didn't help. Yeah. What Psycho 2, the movie, does better than the novels is Perkins' performance is yes. right on. Yeah. His creepiness, his, his, his borderline, am I sane, am I not sane... So I think they do that really well. I mean, yeah, all the yeah. other things you're talking about are, are are well on, are spot on, but you have to create a different type of movie. And I think right. to transition, I think this is where Psycho 3, mm -hmm. directed by Perkins, mm -hmm. gets it right. Yeah. I think they, I think both of the movies understand what the audience wants to see in a Psycho sequel. You know, we can't do the twist ending again, but we can do some interesting things. Right. We can expand the character. We haven't actually talked about this. I, I my mm -hmm. big thing on this podcast is always talking about location as yeah, one yeah, of the characters, yeah. and we haven't yeah. talked about the Psycho House mm -hmm. itself, the Bates home, the Bates whatever, home. Yeah. yeah, I think Psycho Three does a better job with exploring mm -hmm. that. It's it's more run down now, mm -hmm. but just to give our listeners a brief update on Psycho Three, the movie takes place a couple months after the ending of Psycho Two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Norman has killed off the aunt who claimed to be his mother. This so this school. woman's, but the movie opens with a nun having a crisis of faith, trying to commit suicide because she doesn't know if God really exists and accidentally kills off one of the other sisters. Mm -hmm. She's banished from the, from the uh, nunnery monastery, whatever it's called convent. Long story short, after a brief rapey scene with Jeff Fahey in a car as a hitchhiker, mm -hmm. She ends up in Fairvale, you know, bumping into Norman who takes her in because Norman feels that she looks like Marion. And so yeah. now he's having weird feelings about, is she back or should I have, should I try to, you know, right. it's just weird. But he, she reminds him of Marion. And then of course, mayhem ensues. People start dying in Norman's orbit. 
it is Norman. We do realize right away in that movie that Norman is still talking to Mother. We know that Mother's still involved. Norman is killing people under the guise of Mother. Mm -hmm. And he almost kills our nun character who's played by somebody. Diana Scarwood, I believe. Yeah. And then the we get some additional fodder some more people that can potentially be killed off the big twist if you will at the end of this one is jeff fahey steals mother's corpse because he's trying to blackmail norman it's not really a tremendous twist it's yeah. so much as norman the whole third act which i think you and i debate a little bit of the merits of it is really about Norman, or aging Norman, finally having to come to terms with all the elements, the sins of his past, if you right, will. Right, right. And some of which are still carrying over into the present. And him finally having to have a confrontation with his dead mother and, and doing some degree yeah, of Yeah, that purging. was a good scene. There's a lot, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that movie, um, I think the interesting thing, for some of the interesting things about that movie, it is directed by Anthony Perkins himself. Yes, his first film as a director. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, one of two he did, yeah. Yeah. So, and he gets Norman, right? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So he's he's really strong playing Norman in this. Screenwriter Charles Edward Pogue, who also did The Fly, one of my favorite movies. So he knows what he's doing. It's a, it's a bit of a slow burn, but it's a it's a good, you know, it's got a strong script. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, music by Carter Burwell, who has done right. yeah. the Coen Brothers, and he's like yeah. one of my favorite composers, so... It doesn't feel like a Carter Burwell score, but it's it's interesting to see some that that's one of his early pieces of work. Well, Psycho 3 to me was, I actually think it's one of the best horror films of the 80s, period. Mm-hmm. That's not saying much because the 80s, frankly, were not a, it was not a very good, well, it was a very good financial and influential period for horror films, but not a very good quality period. Psycho 3, I think, is an exceptionally good horror movie. Yeah. It ain't reaching the level of the original, but let's get past that. It's not going to. But it has a very, very good story in it. Anthony Perkins is a director who apparently was totally unconfident. Anthony Perkins had two things going on. He did not appreciate I know his technical capabilities, which turned out to be a non-issue. And halfway through production, he found out he had AIDS. Oh, no. So he's dealing with a couple things during the... But he gets Norman... Better yeah. than anybody, even including Hitchcock, got Norman. He gets Hitchcock, because especially those early scenes. Yeah, in I've the, got uh, a huge pile of notes yeah. of the homage to the original oh, Psycho th- movie. There's yeah. stuff he does, scenes that are definitely an homage. Yeah. He also was heavily influenced by the Coen brothers' Blood Simple, which I think was scored by Carter Burwell. Probably, <laughs> yeah, I think he's done all um, that. And you can see the influence in that. It tells a fantastic story. This is where we, this should have been Psycho 2, in yeah. my opinion. Agree um, with that. It's it's not without certain flaws. The third act probably could have been tightened up. Fine. The nun character probably could have been a little bit better realized. Fine. But the suspense scenes are very good. The way he shoots himself mm-hmm. shows he understands Norman. The introductory scene we have with him in the film is phenomenal. This is, if you haven't seen it, and again, some like Eric Lucas, bless your heart, brother. <laughs> You said on Facebook, there was a Psycho 3 and a Psycho 4. Well, I had the same reaction to the novel, so we're all good. Yeah. Yes, there were. Psycho 3 is definitely worth watching if you're a fan of the original. Again, I think it's a three to three and a half star film. Roger Ebert praised it. 
it's especially for the you're right it's a slow burn which probably means why and, and i don't mean it didn't and i don't do mean that business. in a bad way yeah no no it didn't yeah jeff fahey's terrific in the film and he kind is. of this weird role which makes total sense in the film yeah i mean this was an unexpectedly good movie because this really should not have been a good movie yeah universal basically just said yep yeah, what yeah, fine somebody make this movie yeah and anthony perkins and the people working on the film decided you know what we're actually going to make it, it's borderline fan fiction which is not a terribly bad thing right so i totally recommend if you're a fan of the original seek out psycho 3 it's the best follow-up to that film you're going to see yeah i'm just i think i'm just going to reiterate what i said earlier it's the writer the director they get why psycho was popular yeah they get what made it great, yeah, and they gave the audience what they wanted, yeah, while putting a little bit of freshness on it. So it's yeah. it's really well done as a sequel, and and so yeah, skip Psycho two, go straight to Psycho three. You'll figure out the plot. I mean, of... and, and Perkins has a moment in this film that this is clearly where he's having fun, where there's a scene. So just quick thing, we have basically a fake out replay of the shower scene, where he's gonna go kill the nun dressed as mom. But she's already slit her wrist by the time he finds her in the bathtub. Like, well, change in plans. <laughs> right, right. So apparently he calls 911 or whatever after he changes clothes, uh-huh. I guess. Oh, she's already dying? Yeah. <laughs> so she's lying in bed recovering. He visits her because now he's credit for saving her life. And she makes a comment, I guess I made a real mess in the bathroom. And he says, oh, I've seen worse. <laughs> yeah, And yeah. I mean, that is like, I wanted, I stood up in my living room and applauded. That was so funny. Well, and and, and yeah, <laughs> and, and in true Perkins Brilliant, he doesn't say it in like a there's no Bruce willis no, winking no at winking. the... No, yeah, yeah, it's no. just done perfectly. Yeah. And you're like, we get it as fans. He gets it as this character and filmmaker. You're yeah. like, that's when I really realized, you know what? This film's better than I, I, I remember it. Agreed. So all that said, see it. Yeah. I, I uh, If you've seen nothing else, really... Well, so, okay, so let's talk. I'm going to go through quickly because I yeah, haven't yeah, seen yeah, the yeah. rest, but I know you have. Right, right, yeah. There's a fourth movie, which right. I have not seen. So Psycho 4. We can talk about it real quickly. Yeah, go for it. So Psycho 4. Psycho 4, the beginning. Because once you circle the game board, you have to start over again. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you, Ray Wisniewski, for giving me that idea. So Psycho 4 was a direct-to-showtime film, which has a couple interesting distinctions. It was the first film that brought back Bernard Herrmann to do the score. It brought back Joseph Stefano, who had done the screenplay on the original film. And it was the second feature film of genre-favorite director Mick Garris, Mm -hmm. who at that point, his previous feature film was the legendary and highly acclaimed Critters 2, mm. which actually, in the Critters universe, was not a terrible film. Fans, if you want us to review the Critter films, write in immediately. Send <laughs> we'll $5. Patreon, yeah. yes, and, well, I'm, I'm happy to do it. But but real quick story on that. Really, the whole story centers around Norman, once again, Anthony Perkins, who at the time of production was two years away from dying he was battling aids and also bell's palsy so he's really soldiering through this it really has to do with him having a conversation in modern times with a true crime talk show radio talk show while also doing flashbacks to what happened with he and his mother you know in their early years olivia hussey plays his mother henry thomas plays young young norman it's an interesting it's interesting in the bigger picture of psycho it's okay. It lacks any real emotional conviction or strength, but 
If you're a completist, it's worth looking looking into. Just have a couple drinks beforehand <laughs> and you'll be fine. And then, of course, that leads us to the inevitable. Gus not, it wasn't remake. even inevitable. The 1998 <coughs> remake, cleverly titled Psycho. Mm-hmm. So Vince Vaughn and Heche are the two stars. William H. Macy, I think, replaced Martin Balsam and a bunch of other people show up because they were told to. Is by... Julianne Moore in that one? Is... She might have played the, yeah. the sister Lila. Yeah, Lay- I think Lila. she plays Lila. So the whole, the whole trick here, the gimmick here, was that this isn't a remake, just a remake, but it was a shot-for-shot remake of the original film. That was the gimmick here, done by a very, very talented indie filmmaker with some, obviously, star power behind it. And quite frankly, the result is... A pile of crap. I don't know how else to say it. It's it proves one thing. I, I mean, I'm I'm sort of glad it was done just as an experiment to prove why you shouldn't ever do this again. I mean, it's curious and how it's done. I mean, it's curious why you can't do this and still have a good film. I mean, number one was in color, so you were already screwed there. And the example I have of it is you and I use this example. Other Stephen was. Let's say, I don't know who the greatest chef in the world is. Let's say it's Wolfgang Puck, because that's not a genre I know much about, but I know the name, right? Wolfgang, Julia Child is in there somewhere. She's so of, dead. Yeah. I mean, she's so dead, though. Okay. I think Wolfgang Puck's still alive, right? He makes frozen pizza, but go on. Oh, that guy's all right. Those are good pizzas. Anyway, let's say the greatest chef in the world came to us and said, you know what, dudes? Here's the recipe for the greatest dish I have here's the the brand of utensils to use and the temperatures <laughs> to set knock yourself out and you and i go out and set to make this and it turns out to be a pile of crap mm-hmm. because even though we followed everything correctly there's a certain degree of magic timing everything else that has to go into this that makes it special gus van zandt's a super talented filmmaker he's got i don't need to question his resume but he did this and it didn't work. It just flat out didn't work. I think even if I had seen this, not seen the original, because I talked to younger folks who had seen it, they're like, that sucked. Yeah. So it it just flat out didn't work because you just, they actually literally would have been better off just remaking it as let Gus Van Sant do whatever the hell he wanted to do with the story. It would have actually been a better idea. Yeah. So I just, you know, again, more spoiler alerts. I just watched the remake of The Omen, similar deal. Yeah. Effectively the exact same story. Yeah. And it's like, this doesn't work. It's like the magic's not there, whatever that, mm-hmm. that special alchemy is. And then the other one that I don't think either one of us has seen is there's been a very successful Bates Motel series that's been going on, Lifetime or Stars or one of those networks. And I hear nothing but great things about it. So I haven't seen it. Um, there's only so much time in the day to prepare for these podcasts. <laughs> but I hear it's great. And five got five seasons out of it. And I think people, I've probably even listeners here, have seen it. So I've heard good things about it. It really went, I guess it went over the same territory that Psycho 4 did, which was the early years of Norman Bates. Yep. If it was good, good for it. I, again, can't comment on it, but I've heard good things about it. I just, quite honestly, at the time it came out, I wasn't terribly interested. But I'll say in full disclosure, I wasn't terribly interested in the Hannibal series when it came out. And when I watched it later, I thought it was the greatest freaking thing I'd ever seen. That's good. So if you want to seek out Hannibal, uh, well, seek out Hannibal. But if you want to see how Bates Motel, let, let us know. Um, I might be swayed into watching it at some point. So I, I think we're done talking about novels and sequels and remakes and reboots. So let's talk a little bit about the legacy. 
So here we are some 60 years after the original novel and movie. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the legacy of Psycho. What would you like to say, Stephen? Almost everything we've seen since then hinges on the 1960 film, right. really. Well, I mean, I think most people realize that the the block novel and the 1960 film were based on Ed Gein, the Wisconsin cannibal killer, who influenced a lot of stuff after that. But Psycho wound up really influencing the, the, the slasher genre. Oh, yeah. As a slow burn, mind you. But so here's, I mean, if you really look at the sequence... Psycho begat the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1974, which in many regards was an even closer, if not expanded, version of the Ed Gein story. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre begat Halloween. Mm-hmm. Halloween begat Friday the 13th. And of course, there were a few actually Ed Gein movies along the way, including Deranged, if you want to look that one up. But Psycho was the grandfather of the slasher film which became arguably is the most influential genre in horror history for better or worse, Mm -hmm. certainly through the eighties and beyond. So psycho made all that possible. Psycho really is what we go to when we look at what is sort of the, the formula for making a horror film. Psycho in many regards is little red riding hood. Little red riding hood is really what psycho feels like on a very basic level. And most slasher films and horror films from that point on kind of felt that fit that pattern. So Psycho, you can very well make an argument, is in the post-early Universal era, the Frankenstein Dracula era, the Carlos Lugosi era, era, was the most influential horror film ever made. Yeah, I can't argue any of that at all. I mean, argue against that, I should say. Um, totally agree. Uh, I'd forgotten about texas chainsaw massacre but definitely the halloween there's so many right cues from psycho that halloween picks up directly well the texas chainsaw massacre which i actually do think and y'all can eviscerate me i think it's actually a better film than psycho but for different reasons but it it owes everything to psycho i mean again the ed gein story right a lot of the elements and the torment and within the characters but you can watch you can and again this was a slow burn. What happens with the most influential things we've ever seen is sometimes it takes a long time for them to catch on. Mm-hmm. It took a Psycho had a few ripoffs and things during the 60s, which by the way was a horrible decade for horror films. But by the 70s, you're like, oh, look, we can start doing different things. We've got some real anarchists making films at this point. We have some real revolutionary filmmakers. And then you led to these things. And so it got to almost 1980 really before the influence of psycho was truly felt yeah but but i guarantee if you go back and watch if you watch psycho and halloween back to back you will see the influence oh absolutely absolutely yeah when i think about the 70s horror films there's a i mean there's definitely a devil made me do it spell that goes there but it's not slasher by any means no no well you had the studio films and you had the independent films it was a little different vibe yeah but they merged towards the later part of the 70s we we mentioned this earlier but clearly in terms of legacy the shower scene is just, yeah. I, I would say it's just part of American film culture, for yeah. lack of a better word. It's just so well known and understood. Right. Oh, yeah. Herman's score, um, mm-hmm. the the psycho music. Yeah, and just the in-your-face fa- in nature of that music as well. Mm-hmm. That score is like throughout the entire film. I didn't, and I didn't notice that through either of the sequels. Just how, I mean, we talk about location as a character. That score as a character 
building the tension and really putting you on the edge of your pants or edge yeah. of your seat. Yeah. Which is why I'm a little surprised they didn't do more with it with in the in the I mean again, Psycho Four they brought it back. But in the two two and three, I'm not sure why they got away from it. Maybe they thought it was too on point. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they couldn't get rights to it or Bernard Herman told them to go pound sand. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'd have to look it up, but I mean, yeah, it's like doing Jaws without the Jaws theme. I mean, right, even right. that for the most part until Jaws 4, Jaws the Revenge. But let's not go off on that tangent. Yep. They really maintained, you know, the, the score because it was an important part of it. You know, it goes with it. Psycho was a perfect storm. Performance, director, screenwriter, the score. Editing, timing, cinematography. Editing. Yeah. yeah I mean, it. it was... This is why it's, I love these things where it's like, well, why can't we make a movie like Psycho? Why can't we make a movie like Jaws? Well, okay, let's look at why we have to do it. We have to have the perfect, incredibly talented director. We have to have the perfect cast, spot-on screenplay, a magnificent score, perfect spot-on technical contributors. Yeah, that's actually kind of hard. Yeah, you know, That's exactly. actually a little harder than it sounds, isn't it? Anything else we want to talk about, Psycho? We got some, it's getting long in the tooth. We have some housekeeping. I'm hoping they don't make another one. But. Well, well they made they made the TV series. Well, good for them. I will say this, though. This occurred to me in our COVID generation. Because one of the things I've enjoyed doing as kind of a morbid hobby was going and looking at Yelp reviews of hotels over the past <laughs> year during the COVID and how basically a lot of really good hotels have just gone to crap in the midst of us. And one of the conclusions I reached was that if you're if you're traveling right now and you're going to stay at a hotel, you're better off staying at really a, a real low end hotel because they've had the le- the smallest drop off of the biggest ones. So in light of this, the Bates Motel <laughs> probably wouldn't be a bad thing to go to right now. That's right. Twelve cabins full of vacancies. Keep the door locked. <laughs> uh, take a you know what you don't need to shower every night. Just saying. It just occurred to me as I'm. I'm Looking at those reviews and preparing for this podcast, I'm like, you know, the Bates Motel actually might be have flourishing right now. Probably true. Faithful listeners, we actually got some comments and emails and voicemails for this episode. All of these are based on our last episode, which was The Thing, as you guys remember. The first one that was most interesting is we actually received a comment from the grandson of John Campbell, the author of The Thing. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, and he said, love how this is still being discussed by so many. Grandpa would be amazed as we are the family. So that was from John Campbell Hammond. So thank you. And I just want to say all the negative comments about the novel came from Stephen Newton, not Stephen (laughs) Payne. (laughs) Well, actually, I don't know if he actually listened to the podcast. I'm I'm assuming he actually listened to it. So that's good. We also received an email from our friend Ray Wisniewski, who writes in and basically said that he just finished Who Goes There. And then he talks, he goes on to talk about how their view was split between Siskel and Ebert. We talked a little bit about it on the yeah, show. Yeah. Things stood out to me was a reference to Siskel and Ebert. For anyone not born in the same decade as us, they may not be appreciated how integral Sneak Previews was for its time. Sneak Previews, which then became Siskel and Ebert at the movies, which then became at the movies was i mean for me and a lot of people it was super influential in terms of the success of films it was in it started out as like a little chicago it was on pbs i think initially. yeah it was and then it moved on to nbc or whatever else but 
it had a lot to do with the success and or failure of films. And again, this is one of those cases you have to take film critics for what they are, but their vote carried a lot of weight. And with the thing, it was not a it was generally not a very good review. Yeah, um, it was at best qualified. But as I think we may have talked about in the original episode, I think the John Carpenter's The Thing was as much a victim of bad timing as any movie has ever suffered in history. Because today it's viewed as a masterpiece in the classic. Absolutely. So, yeah, and um, just to divert a little bit more on that. So Siskel and Ebert, creature features for us in the Bay Area faithful listener nola bird talks about apparently there's a creature features like show that's happening in the new orleans character like with dr so and so i'll look it up either. every area has had their own i mean be it elvira or Svenguli. Svenguli, that's who you talked about Svenguli, yeah. who yeah. i still rent yeah there's always been well even right today i think it's on i don't know what my joe parents bob, watch it. Right. well joe bob Briggs. i think my parents watch it i don't it's a local channel there is a new creature features yeah. on locally that basically plays public domain car films. Right, but, right. But yeah, there's always... The, the glory days of local television, every local television area had their horror, late night horror host. Yep. Um, and then Ray follows up with, he hopes we will consider Logan's Run, and I love Logan's Run. And so I have read the original. My girlfriend bought me the two sequel novels, which again were hard to find on eBay, but apparently she found them. <laughs> so yeah, so I hope to do a Logan's Run episode someday as well. I don't object to that. I think with um, so Logan's Run has an interesting timeliness. So again, you and I, you know, we talked earlier. We're in our mid thirties. We're not yeah super young men, but the whole idea in Logan's Run of killing people after they're thirty at one point seemed absurd. But quite frankly, in the Bay Area, if you're over 35 and you're trying <laughs> to get a job in a big company, good luck to you, Grandpa. Yeah. So there may be some interesting resonance to the whole theme with Logan's Run. So I would be a, I would be in favor of Logan's Run episode. I don't know if I want to read a whole bunch of books on it, but I definitely would be in favor I of the original. I think there's three, and I think in the novel they're killing him off at 21, if memory serves, but... More on that later. Well, you you told me there were two sequels to Psycho, and now I've <laughs> suffered brain damage for That's having right. read them. Well, the good news is I've already purchased those books for you, so we don't okay. need to well, it's on you this time. for that. Okay. A quick update in the time since we recorded this episode and I edited this episode. William Nolan, the author of Logan's Run, passed away. So it makes my interest in doing a review of those novels and movies that much greater. We did receive a voicemail from Todd McGowan, so we'll play that now. Hey guys, Todd McGowan here. That last episode on The Thing was was fantastic, and it brought back so many so many great memories that I've had with this movie over the years. Uh, I saw it, of course, first shortly after it, it came out in the early 80s, but I had the opportunity on more than one occasion to to watch it in uh, very interesting uh, environments. The, the first environment I had that was interesting was on a isolated radar um, station on the north tip of Vancouver Island in the 1990s, early 1990s. And there was only 14 of us, I think at most, on that station on top top of this mountain and we had these these wooden catwalks that 
went in between buildings and, and radar towers and looked a lot like the the uh, the walkways, the wooden walkways with supplies sitting there, like in the in the uh, first thing movie. And the other environment I got to watch it, which was really interesting, was um, up in CFS Alert, which is Canadian Forces Station Alert, which is at the top of Ellesmere Island. So it's like maybe 400 kilometers from the North Pole. And I got to watch the thing up there. And that's the kind of environment where you've got ropes in between buildings because of, you know, upcoming snowstorms or what, whatever. And uh, so just a, a really, really evocative uh, environment to watch that movie. Um, and the other third thing, too, is um, when they filmed the, the sequel in, in, what, 2010, 2011, um, they filmed part of that at uh, Canadian Forces Base Trenton, uh, making it look like uh, McMurdo in the uh, Antarctic. Uh, and I actually had a friend who was a uh, public affairs officer who got a, got a little part as, a, as an extra on the... Uh, on the scene where on the, where they're on the plane coming into McMurdo. Anyways, uh, yeah, lots of great memories from that movie, and thanks for thanks for sharing. Okay, and I can't uh, can't wait to hear hear more of your your stuff coming down the pipe. All right, thanks a lot. Bye. So, Todd, that sounds like that's awesome. Um, that's pretty <laughs> awesome. That that would be the perfect location to see those films. That's a great experience you had there. So um, I think I was up in that location and I saw like a husky dog run through the snow. <laughs> I would lose all bodily control right on the spot. I just, right. So, yeah, that's that is an amazing story, Todd. Thank you very much. That's actually one of the coolest freaking things. I, think I know that is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, Todd Sagua sixty three on Podbean writes in and says, have you ever considered doing a show on I Am Legend by Richard Matheson? In fact, we could do a whole episode of Matheson himself. He goes yeah. on to talk about Incredible Shrinking Man, What Dreams May Come, Somewhere in Time, Hell House, yada, yada, yada. So when Stephen E. and I kicked off this podcast, we actually created a big list of films and books and authors. And Richard Matheson was indeed on that list, as mm-hmm. was Logan's Run. Right. So, yeah, I would love to do, at the very least, I would love to do I Am Legend. It has spawned so many sequel, well, not sequels, but adaptations, I should say. Well, going all the way back to the 50s, I mean, you start with uh, Last Man on Earth all the way to the um, uh, Will Smith film. No, it's that, uh, I Am Legend is definitely a, definitely meets all the criteria for something we would do. I would certainly, yeah, we're definitely going to discuss that because that's definitely going to be on our radar I, it, it meets all the criteria for something we'd want to do. So absolutely. So in fact, I just... Um, that I, means I get to watch the Omega <laughs> Man again. I love it. I don't know how it happened, but apparently I have like six copies of the Moon Pool. <laughs> and I've got like and three... I've got at least one. Three copies of Dark Tower. And I think I have like two or three copies of uh, I Am Legend in my room. So yeah, so we'll get to that. Did I ever tell you I wrote a theme song for that? No. It goes like this. I am legend, hear me roar, in numbers too big to ignore. Okay, so Stephen is trying to channel Helen Ruddy. I, I ripped it off. I admit it. Sorry. So, thank you everybody for <laughs> writing in, listening. We really appreciate it. Again, as I've been alluding to, I would like to see that we do The Omen next or some of those Omen movies. I don't know if that will actually happen, but I'm, I'm going through an Omen phase right now. Stephen, anything you'd like to say to our listeners before we wrap things up? Well, I'd just like to say, look, we'll we'll pick something, and I think uh, the omens up there. 
if anybody has any additional suggestions so i mean i will look at we have the omen we have i am legend we have logan's run i'd like to do jaws at some point yeah. we've talked about phantom of the opera oh yeah i'm reading phantom right now too the yeah. phantom you're reading yeah. right now dr jekyll and mr hyde so i mean there are a number and another 248 stephen king novels that we could look at <laughs> So, yeah, if anyone is passionate about a, a specific topic, we've had others suggested before, we're open to it, including our fans in Poland. Let us know what you want to do. <laughs> we're and big in Poland. We are big in Poland. So go Poland. Yeah, let us know. I mean, otherwise, we'll just kind of come up with something and hope you all will go along with it. Thank you again, and we'll see you next month. I want to send a special thank you to Ava Newton for reading the shower scene from Robert Block's novel, Psycho. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.